suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. Yes, another episode. We're up to 359, Joe. Um, won't be long and there will be, there will be an episode for every day of the week. If somebody wanted to catch up, they could listen to an hour and an hour and a half for a day for an entire year. Anyway... Won't uh, recommend that to you. That's probably a little bit too much. This is a podcast. We talk about news and politics, sex and religion. I'm uh, Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. I've already said hello to Joe. Hello, Joe. Joe's, Trevor. Uh, Joe's the tech guy. Why isn't your volume working, Joe? Is it working? I don't know. No, when we were listening to the intro music, it was cutting in and out. So oh. I don't know what's going on. You seem to be working now, but your video or things seem a bit delayed. Anyway, if you're in the chat room, say hello. And look, normally on this podcast, we talk about articles that I find during the week, things that have happened in the last seven days. <clears throat> and, you know, looking about what's happened in the world in the last seven days, not much really. I mean, UK Parliament falling apart, Russia's bombing Ukraine. Um, but it's all the same old, same old. It's been going on for weeks. In the Australian Parliament and in Australian politics, it's all very quiet. So there's not a lot going on. A few uh, religious nutters in schools are doing things, but we can sort of catch up with that at another time. So um, so this episode, I'm going to do what I've been threatening to do for a little while. I've been reading a couple of books and I'm going to run through some of the ideas in these books and try and work them together and see where we end up. I'm a little bit worried about this. It's, you know, I've got excerpts from books and if I just read them out to you, it could get quite boring. I hope that doesn't happen like that. I don't have any clips, um, but hopefully Joe will interrupt me and we can just talk about different ideas as they crop up. But uh, the first book is by a guy called Vaclav Smil and he wrote a book called How the World Really Works and that's going to concentrate on how difficult it will be to transfer to renewable energy. And it's a lot harder than perhaps we're giving it credit. And the other book is Less Is More by Jason Hickel, which is really looking at growth, uh, GDP growth, growth in the economy, how under our current uh, stage of, um, of um, capitalism that we've reached, growth is everything. You remember the last election and the election before that, and the one before that. Jobs and growth. Jobs and growth. <clears throat> Jobs and growth. And I think in the UK um, Parliament as well, Truss has definitely been saying growth and something else. It wasn't jobs? What was it, Joe? It was growth and something. I don't know, but yeah. apparently the way they're going to grow the economy is by growing the economy. Yes. Or something that she said. I wouldn't doubt it. Um, and, and have you seen... Uh, one of the UK newspapers has got a live stream of a cabbage to see which, or was it yes, lettuce? Yes, lettuce, to see which one lasts longer. 
Yes, I yeah. did see that. Yeah. Because Kamikaze's already gone. Yes. As. So anyway, all that sort of stuff's going on. But it's been going on for weeks. And maybe what we're going to talk about tonight is a bit more of the bigger issues behind all that, some of the driving forces. So we'll give it a crack, see where, we're, where we end up. And, uh, yeah, I'm not 100% confident about this one, but we'll see how they're going. Um, hello in the chat room to Jack H and Andrew Jackson. And if you're in the chat room, say hello. So Vaclav Smil, before I get on to his book, um, who is he? So he's a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba, author of over 40 books on topics including energy, environmental and population change, food production and nutrition, technical innovation, risk assessment and public policy. Um, no other living scientist has had more books on a wide variety of topics reviewed in the leading scientific journal called Nature. So he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and one of um, Bill Gates' favourite authors. Not that that counts for a lot. But anyway, that's his credentials um, in his book. So he wants to depopulate the planet then? He doesn't say that about depopulation. Um, he's just saying... This is, oh, just Bill Gates, you know, because oh, Bill, Bill Gates' Gates. evil plan is to take over the world. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't, I'm not quite sure of their relationship, but he is one of Bill Gates' favourite authors. Anyway, what his uh, book is essentially saying is that if we're going to decarbonise our global economy by 2050, it's going to be really at the cost of huge changes to our global econ economy, a real retreat, a real shrinking and a retreat from the current economy. Um, basically, cutting back is the only way it's going to happen. So he says that the economic system is essentially a system for extracting, processing and transforming energy as resources into energy embodied in products and services. So our economy is about, okay, it's a service-based economy in Australia, but globally, well, even in Australia, we are digging holes and shipping commodities overseas and we mm -hmm. are building houses. Uh, you know, holes and houses is the Australian economy in one sense. It's not just a service economy. And, you know, when you look at an economy, it's about making stuff or, or creating and doing services that enables you to buy stuff from the people who do make it. It's about things and it's about shipping them around the world and it's and things are made with energy. So that's the change that's happened in the world over the last 200 years is is where we used to be reliant on uh, what he calls traditional biofuels, which was essentially just burning wood for campfires mm -hmm. and things like that. And we have really transitioned to these dense energy um, globules of either coal initially and crude oil and natural gas, where there is so much energy compacted into something quite small and we're able to harness that energy and make enormous amounts of stuff and 
this has been the problem with um, replacing petrol with electric vehicles. Yes. Is the best batteries around are a third, I think, the capacity. Um, so for the same volume, mm. you get a third of the energy density of petrol. Mm. Yep. So it's an incredibly inefficient, or, or petrol is incredibly efficient. Mm. But we don't need to necessarily wean ourselves off petrol. We need to wean ourselves off petrol that it comes from fossil fuel that's underground. Yes. We need to be creating our own petrol from the carbon dioxide that's in the air or the carbon that's naturally around. So uh, are you meaning a hydrogen-fueled vehicles? Is that what you were saying? Um, so, so what I saw a, a UQ presentation on um, biodiesel hmm. grown by algae. Ah, uh, okay. Right. And and so you can yeah basically have gas mm. so uh, or uh, jet fuel mm. is diesel so you could convert your planes and you can convert your boats and you can convert your trucks to run on diesel that's grown by algae right and that in itself breaks the the problem of us digging up ancient carbon mm. which is buried deep underground and we're reusing the carbon that's in the atmosphere. Mm. If we can create a process that can create enough of that stuff efficiently, yeah, and, and they, this is this is the problem. I mm. mean, it's uh, currently it's easy to dig it out of the ground, but then we're subsidising that, mm. yeah, yep. with a huge amount of money, mm. because mm. you know the the fossil fuel companies are getting a lot of tax breaks to do that. Indeed, yep. Um, I, I still think we made a big mistake back in the 80s and 90s. We should have been growing these industries back then and exporting them around the world. Uh, the algae industry, is that what you're saying? This well, uh, but, uh, solar, wind, hydro, all of those we should have been looking at mm. 40 years ago. Yeah. But 40 years ago we were in the 80s, Joe, and the 80s was all about private enterprise and the initiative of private enterprise and that they would do these things and government should stay but, out of it. And, of course, it doesn't yeah, they, make they sense. they claim that, but yeah. government was giving them huge tax breaks, yeah. the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Um, so, you know, if they'd taken a little bit of that money back then and invested mm. it. Mm. But, yeah, but we I, into, I think we should. We were into we small be, government yeah. and, and, and really it's a myth that, uh, private enterprises into research at that sort of level. So um, anyway, let's just move on a little bit. Um, so he's just making the point in this book of how difficult it will be, and there's some interesting statistics that he's got here. So what he's saying is we've got no readily deployable commercial-scale alternatives um, for the four material pillars of modern civilization, which he identifies as... Um, producing steel, ammonia, cement, and plastics. So he talks about, okay, maybe um, uh, transport with vehicles, maybe in terms of cooling homes with solar panels, but these major pillars of producing steel, ammonia, cement, and plastics, we haven't developed large-scale processes to do that using renewables. And um, and I found this very interesting about fertiliser, Joe. Um, so we're going to have a – we're all going to learn a little bit about fertiliser in this next bit. So in ancient Egypt, 
the uh, density rate, people per hectare, um, it rose from 1.3 persons per hectare of cultivated land to about two and a half people per hectare. That's, that's what uh, could be sustained. And mm-hmm. this was a relatively high production density, a very good performance, and it was basically due to the Nile's reliable annual flooding. So the Nile would flood and deposit. Bring down fresh soil. Yeah. Mm. Have you been to the Nile, Joe? No. Right. Um, over time, uh, and very slowly, pre-industrial rates of food production rose even higher, but rates of three people per hectare were not achieved until the 16th century, and only then in intensely cultivated regions of Ming China. So not a lot of progress from ancient Egypt to 16th century Ming China. No, I, I read a um, a book about parasites, and they were saying that the Chinese were using basically human dung to oh. fertilise their fields. Yes. And there was a problem with the parasites getting back into the um, food crops. Yes. And it was inventing a process where they could carry on using human waste as fertiliser, mm. but process it in a way to kill the parasites, to break the cycle. Mm. And so it was a how do we allow them to carry on with their natural fertilisation whilst stopping the spread of parasites into humans. And did they work it out? Yeah, um, basically it was uh, urns, big urns, and it it fermented and the heat in the fermentation killed the parasites. There you go. Apparently um, human waste is really not that great in terms of a fertiliser anyway. It's obviously better than nothing, but um, compared to, say, modern-day ammonia or urea, oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. it's nowhere near it. So um, you'd have to cart around. A, if you decided to stop uh, the use of ammonia and urea and rely on um, sort of recycling of waste and human or animal waste, you'd have to cart a lot of shit around to make up for it, like huge amounts. Uh, well, that's, yeah. that's why the Americans had their huge territorial expansion in the Late nineteenth century uh, was was grabbing guano, right? Yes, yes. Was was mining bird shit basically yep. to spread as fertilizer mm. for the nitrogen. Mm. And in fact, where I grew up, um, they used to pull um, what they call frac, it's a seaweed, mm-hmm. and they would burn it as a fuel. Yep, um, and then spread the ashes on the fields. Okay, as yep. a fertilizer. There you go. Yeah. So, um, where are we up to here? In Europe, they remained below two people per hectare until the 18th century. And only a few generations ago, um, only a small share of wealthy elites did not have to worry about having enough to eat. So, in 1950, the world was able to supply adequate food to about 890 million people. So, that was our capacity in 1950. Enough food for 890 million people. But by 2019, that had risen to just over 7 billion, nearly an eightfold increase. And the question is, what explains this impressive achievement? And before we answer that, well, you already know the answer is in terms of uh, fertiliser and urea, but before we get to that, um, uh, have a listen to this one. To trace the evolution of agricultural production, we'll look at the past two centuries of American wheat production. So... Imagine yourself in New York in 1801, growing wheat, 
and you'd have a farmer and he'd have two oxen harnessed to a wooden plough whose cutting edge is an iron plate and he'd be using seed that he saved from the previous year's crop, uh, sown by hand. And um, so putting the crop in takes about 27 hours of human labour for every hectare. It's cut with sickles and the sheaves are hauled to a barn and they're threshed. Um, So securing the crop, uh, harvesting it, takes about 120 hours of human labour per hectare. So the complete process demands about 150 hours of human labour as well as about 70 ox hours. And the yield is just one tonne of grain per hectare. Um, And you've got to keep 10% of that aside for next year's crop. So all all up, it takes about 10 minutes of human labour to produce one kilogram of wheat 200 years ago. So a century later, uh, the same farmer's got four powerful horses, he's got steel ploughs, he's got mechanical seed drills, mechanical harvesters are used. Um, The yield is still low. It's only one tonne per hectare. but there's much less human labour. So uh, basically human labour is 1.5 minutes per kilogram of grain compared to 10 minutes. Um, well, incidentally, about a quarter of all American farmland is devoted to growing food for draft animals. So that was 100 years ago. Now, 2021, uh, of course, you've got one or two people with massive machinery Uh, seed comes from certified growers, and above all, plenty of nitrogen is applied as ammonia or urea, and it now takes two seconds of human labour per kilogram of grain. So we've gone in two centuries from 10 minutes for a kilogram to two seconds. It is impressive. Yeah, Uh, I mean, I know that. I believe even as late as a century ago, ten <clears> percent <throat> uh, of the workforce was employed in agriculture. Right. Yeah. Just growing the food for everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's now less than one percent, I think. Yeah. Hey, Tom, the warehouse guy. I see you in the chat room. I'll have to get in contact with you. Um, going to do something with Robin, a little uh, social event. So I'll talk to you. All right. Um, let me see. Uh, so. Yeah, we're down to two seconds. Um, the energy required um, to produce the farm machinery is dwarfed by the energy for producing the uh, chemicals, either the fertiliser or the pesticides. So um, every crop of high-yielding wheat or rice requires more than 100 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare. And... Nitrogen is needed in great quantities because it's in every living cell. So if you want to grow stuff, you need to build it with nitrogen. Um, So nitrogen is abundant and it's in the atmosphere. It makes up 80% of the atmosphere. Um, It exists as the non-reactive molecule N2. And only a few natural processes can split the two nitrogen atoms and make the element available to form compounds. So lightning will do it. Um, The other thing that's natural that will do it is bacteria attached to the root of legumes. So that's responsible for most natural nitrogen. 
So this bacteria that's attached to the roots of legumes is able to convert the nitrogen. So as a result, legumes, including soybeans, beans, peas, lentils, peanuts, are able to provide their own nitrogen supply. But unfortunately, stable grains or tubers can't do that. So what you have to do is grow a field of legumes and plough it in and then grow your wheat. It will be able to use the nitrogen that came from the previous legume crop. So, Joe, if you want to make a lot of money, you could invent a wheat uh, variant that allows bacteria to convert nitrogen in the same way that legumes do. If you can do that, write your own ticket, Joe. It's the, it's the secret that, that will change the world. Well, as long as you can do it on an industrial scale, yes. Yes, indeed. So, You've, you've heard about what's happening in Sri Lanka? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, so the government in Sri Lanka said, we're fed up with dealing with all this horrible modern crap we're going back to natural processes of fertilising right, and uh, of tending the soil. Ah, uh, that's led to the riots? That's led to food shortages, mm-hmm. which has led to the riots. Right, yeah. And was that because they couldn't pay for the fertiliser because they were broke? So. Well, they were going too much money going overseas, buying all this stuff. We're going to go back to our natural methods. And, of course, the natural yeah. methods are just not as... Um, Fine if you want to sustain two and a half people per hectare. Basically. I think there's more people than that, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. And and so, yeah, there's huge food shortages. Mm. And so they're having to buy their food from overseas. Yeah. Yep. Incidentally, just before we um, came on, I quickly, because I remember talking to a friend of my son's who was involved. There's There's a facility down at the Port of Brisbane where they use natural gas and Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for hydrogen. Uh, no, where they are uh, using natural gas to split nitrogen and to make um, fertiliser. And okay. I remember him telling me this a couple of years ago that basically you just make it out of thin air because there's nitrogen yep. in the air provided you've mm-hmm. got the energy. And I see that in Brisbane they're looking at that facility and looking at a process where they will use renewable electricity to make hydrogen and then use the hydrogen uh, as the fuel source as the fuel source to split the nitrogen so because making hydrogen is easy you just crack water yes if you've got enough energy yes yes, enough energy to do it and if you're standing far enough back in case it all explodes (laughs) it's a minor problem yeah it's part of it so okay um so where were we? Yes, um, old-fashioned way, grow some legumes and alternate your crops, and that is a natural way of getting nitrogen back into the soil because of the bacteria that grows on the roots of legumes. Right. Um, so a couple of other cost figures. To produce a kilogram of bread, by the time you calculate uh, the fertiliser costs, machineries that's used in the wheat field, transportation, energy used in milling the wheat and then in 
baking the bread, um, a kilogram of bread has 210 milliliters of diesel fuel in it. It's the energy cost in a loaf of bread. Um, chicken. Kilogram of chicken meat, it's variable, but it can be as low as 200 milliliters of diesel fuel in one kilogram of chicken meat. Uh, but it could be as high as a litre, it depends. Um, but of course you've got to cook it and um, get it on the dinner plate so it's then up to about 300 to 350. So um, bread, a kilogram needs two 10 millilitres. Uh, roast chicken on the plate, 300 to 350. Tomatoes, Joe. Uh, can be grown anywhere. You just need 90 days of warm weather. Typically, they're grown in greenhouses. And so in Europe, they have some massive uh, greenhouses in Spain. And there's one there that has, uh, it's 40,000 hectares of tomatoes, growing tomatoes for that end up all over Europe. And um, uh, a tomato grown in those conditions has an embedded energy cost of about 130 milliliters per kilogram. But, no, it's a 650. But, well, but if it gets shipped to Scandinavia, um, then it ends up at 650, uh, which apparently is what happens. So uh, in other words, um, for a medium-sized tomato, there's nearly five tablespoons of diesel fuel uh, per tomato. So... No wonder the tomatoes taste like <laughs> Yeah. Seafood, about 700 milliliters per kilogram. Um, there we go. So, um, yeah. So if we were not to use organic, um, if we're just relying on organic waste and human waste and trucking heaps of shit around and not using uh, this synthetic sort of ammonia, then we could feed about 3 billion people. But uh, otherwise, we need that, uh, that um, fertiliser in the system. Um, China, we keep mentioning China. I like Chinese. So um, remember when Nixon sort of reopened trade with China back in the 70s? And he Ooh, made it old. You remember it? Hang on, you weren't that old? No, I'm not born? that old. Oh, okay. 72. When were you born, Joe? 72. Oh, well, it was, might have been on your birthday. Trip to Beijing, 72. Oh, you just can't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first thing, the first thing that the Chinese ordered or bought when they were you know, allowed to was 13 of the world's most advanced ammonia urea plants from M.W. Kellogg of Texas. And um, today, 60% of the nutrient available in China's crops comes from synthetic ammonia. Take that out and they're down to 40%. Uh, it feeds three out of five Chinese people. It's quite incredible, really. Um, okay. So... So, yeah, in the book, he talks about steel, ammonia. He doesn't talk so much about steel and cement and plastics. He mentions them briefly, but obviously there's lots of embedded energy in making steel 
500 kilograms of carbon per tonne of steel. So essentially it's 50%. Um, and um, cement, of course, also is requires furnaces and so lots of energy goes in that. So, um, yeah, so it's a book where he talks about it's all very well to convert our homes, our heating um, computers that I'm surrounded with here into electricity, but there's lots of other processes in our community that rely on energy and converting that to renewables is going to be tricky. So that's the essence of Vaclav Smil's book. Next one is a guy called Jason Hickel, who I've mentioned before. And um, uh, actually, should we go through some um, anything in the chat room here? So Andrew says, energy is what's needed, not petrol or diesel. It could be anything, including petrol and diesel, and the energy density will be different. Um, but a practical pedal car to China isn't to be ignored. Um, Andrew Jackson says, organic farming isn't as productive by area. A complete country going that way seems nutty unless you're overproduce, overproducing a lot. Andrew Jackson, are you the wheat guy in Western Australia? I can't remember if, if you're a wheat watcher. Is that you as well? Um, uh, and Andrew also grows his own lettuce using hydroponic and grow lights. All right. Uh, yeah, it's called lettuce, but we know really it's hash. Yeah. <laughs> Jason Hickel. So um, less is more is the book. So he makes some good points here. We tend to think about climate change as primarily a matter of temperature. Many people are not particularly concerned about this because our everyday experience with temperature is that a few degrees doesn't really make that much of a difference. I thought that was a good point. Mm. People's personal experience would be, well, the temperature goes up two or three degrees. Tomorrow could be two or three degrees hotter than today. Won't really worry me. And I think people do view it that way. So personal experience of people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's not realising the knock-on effects of, what a couple of degrees temperature difference can make. Yes, and how delicate the system seems to be. Mm -hmm. mm. <clears throat> Apparently half of Asia's population depends on water that flows from Himalayan glaciers. If they all yeah. melt uh, and no water, and they're not replaced. Well, um, yeah. California's got a big problem at the moment mm. because they're reliant on snow melt and the uh, mountains aren't getting the snow. And they just keep building uh, new communities. Mm. Um, he gets on to capitalism. He says, we have a tendency to, to describe capitalism with familiar, well-worn words like markets and trade, but this isn't quite accurate. Capitalism is different because it is organised around the imperative of constant expansion or growth and ever-increasing levels of industrial extraction. Under capitalism, global GDP needs to keep growing by at least 2 or 3% per year which is the minimum necessary for large firms to maintain rising aggregate profits. 3% growth means doubling the size of the global economy every 23 years and then doubling it again from its already doubled state and then again and again. 
And he says, this might be okay if GDP was just plucked out of thin air, but it's not. It's coupled to energy and resource use. But then don't forget GDP um, isn't necessarily a positive measure. No. So if I pollute and then somebody has to clean up that pollution, Mm. that increases GDP. Mm. So not necessarily all activity that is beneficial. Mm. Um, or sorry, GDP isn't just the gro- the growth of beneficial things. It's also the growth of anything that causes human activity. Correct. So floods hit Victoria. Yep. GDP will go up. Yes. Because we have to rebuild. Yes. But uh, government provides a service for free. Doesn't show up in GDP. So free serve a uh, free schools by mm. a government opens up a new school, ten a hundred new schools offering education for free doesn't show up on GDP. So well, those schools have got to be built, and therefore there'll be GDP. Yeah, but in terms of the operating of it, so um, yeah, so uh, yeah, GDP is. A really poor figure. The guy who invented GDP did not intend for it to be used the way it's ended up being used. And, what a surprise. Yes. And essentially it was um, aimed at in a dark, you know, this is back in um, uh, FDR and, and the new, um, uh, new, Deal? new Deal and trying to work out the state of the economy and trying to figure out what was happening. And essentially they were talking to manufacturers of stuff as to what's your inventory, how much have you made, how much do you expect to make. It's very much a survey-based thing. Mm -hmm. And it really worked quite well for uh, products and doesn't work nearly so well for services. And other things that it does is, you know, weapons manufacturing counts as a beneficial thing in GDP, and you could say maybe that shouldn't be seen as a beneficial thing. So there's a whole lot of um, strange statistical anomalies in the GDP figures. Yeah, war is good for GDP. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, 3% growth would be considered average, okay, all right, nothing spectacular, but sort of solid, but that... 3% every year maintaining it does mean that mm-hmm. something has to double essentially every 23 years and then you just got to keep Human going. Human populations have, haven't they? What's that? Human populations have close to that, I think. Yeah, maybe they have and that's maybe one of the reasons why there has been this growth. But then that's also leading to the problem of um, too much for our environment because we're in a closed system. So he makes the point that, if we're just going to keep accepting that growth of 3% per year is not only normal but desirable and that we're going to effectively just keep doubling the economy every 25 years. Actually, I'm just going to skip down to um, another paragraph down below here where he talks about this again. He says, um, uh, where is it? Um, Take the global economy in the year 2000 and grow it at the usual rate of 3% a year. Even this modest sounding increment will double the economic output every 23 years, which means quadrupling before the middle of the century, within half a human lifespan. And if we continue growing at that same rate, by the end of the century, the economy will be 20 times bigger 
and another 100 years later, it's going to be 370 times bigger, and then another 100 years, it's going to be 7,000 times bigger. It's at some point you just can't keep doing it is what he's saying. Um, so what he makes the point is even if we achieved 100% clean energy, we must ask what are we going to do with it? Unless we change how our economy works, we'll keep doing exactly what we've been doing with fossil fuels. We'll use it to power continued extraction and production at an ever-increasing rate, placing ever-increasing pressure on the living world because that's what capitalism requires. So um, clean energy might help with emissions, but it does nothing to reverse deforestation, overfishing, soil depletion and mass extinction. So I think that's a good point. Even if we achieved 100% renewable energy, if we just keep doubling an economy every 23 years, we're going to ruin the planet in any number of other ways. There's also the problem of um, 100% renewable energy needs for the current population. Mm. Population in 20 years' time. Mm. I think you're cutting so out. So we will let, yeah. Yeah, I know. It seems to be it. You've got a, a lag or something happening there. Is your internet... Um, Lagging your speed? No, I think it's I think it's the CPU. All right, okay. Shut down some programs, Jay. You just I have done. Okay, all right. Um, So Jason Hickel says um, we've got to look at growth because even if we made one hundred percent clean energy, but just kept kept doing what we're doing with growth, we're going to be in trouble. Um, So he says growth, uh, we're trapped. It's a structural imperative, an iron law. It has ironclad ideological support from politicians on the left and the right who might bicker about how to distribute the yields of growth but do not disagree when it comes to the pursuit of growth. Joe, have you seen anybody um, talking about degrowth, let's stop the growth? Have you been seeing anything in regular media along those lines? Are people talking that way? Only about population growth, not about economic growth. Right. Okay. Um, he says there's been a taboo. It was the political party that was all about um, population zero population growth. Yeah. I think Dick Smith was into that, wasn't he? He might have been. I think I'm into it now, as well. Right. Knowing what I know now. I don't think we can support. Yeah, I don't know that it was necessarily worldwide. I think this was very much Australia. Mm. And it was deemed to be mm, xenophobic. Mm. Yeah. People said, people accused people wanting lower population growth as being xenophobic. Yeah, because most of Australia's population growth comes from migrants. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it wasn't that long ago when Peter Costello said, have one kid for each parent and then one extra for the country, like have three kids is what he was saying. Yeah, I was going to say I'm fairly sure we got $7,000 for our daughter's (laughs) birth because of that. Baby bonuses, yeah. Hey, I had four kids, so, you know, you can always change your mind. Just to apologise to my two youngest, I probably thought that looking back now, I think it's probably a bad idea. don't know how that will go around the dinner table. Mm. Okay, um, so he says there's been a taboo about uh, questioning um, this growth mantra and 
Um, but that's starting to change. And he reckons that um, oh, there's quotes a number of polls where people might be talking about it. Um, uh, let me just skip through that a little bit. Um, I think I've mentioned this part before where I talk about people, whether they're capitalist or not. Um, he says, while markets have been around for many thousands of years in different times and places, um, capitalism is a relatively recent, being only about 500 years old. So, yeah, essentially he's saying we've got this problem with growth, which is really a function of capitalism. And if we want to work out what we should be doing in the future, we have to understand how we got to where we are in the current state. So how did we get to where we are with capitalism today? So a bit of a history lesson coming up. I find this quite interesting. Everyone learns in school that feudalism was a brutal system that produced terrible human misery. In the early 1300s, commoners across Europe began rebelling against the feudal system. And those early rebellions had little success and they were crushed by well-armed militaries. Uh, there was a Black Death, uh, 1347, a bubonic plague, uh, wiped out a third of Europe's population, which triggered some uh, unprecedented events. In the wake of uh, those deaths, uh, labour was scarce and land was abundant. Suddenly. Peasants and workers had more bargaining power. By the middle of the 1400s, wars were erupting between peasants and lords across Western Europe. The peasants wanted nothing short of revolution. The movement ultimately succeeded in destroying serfdom across much of the continent. In England, the practice of serfdom was almost completely eradicated in the wake of the 1381 revolt. Serfs became free farmers subsisting on their own lands. They worked for wages if they wanted extra income. Rarely was that under coercion. In Germany, peasants came to control up to 90% of the country's land, and historians have described the period from 1350 to 1500 as the golden age of European proletariat. You aware of that, Joe? Any inkling of that in your history lessons? Uh, not history lessons, but I was listening to something about the potato famine in Ireland mm -hmm. and saying that the serfs actually had more rights than the what they replaced. Right. Because the landlord had uh, a duty mm -hmm. to the people who lived on his land. Yep. His vassals, I suppose. Mm. Um, so he had a duty to feed them. He had a duty to look after them. Mm. Whereas when um, serfdom ended, they became effectively farmers on their own land. Yep. And um, but sorry, they they weren't on their own land. They leased land. Yep. Tenants had less rights. Yep. Yep. So they could be turfed off in favour of somebody else who was willing to pay more rent. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. So um, so anyway, just going back to this period, uh, we had the golden era of the uh, proletariat, 1350 to 1500. Needless to say, Europe's elites were not pleased. And what this new society might have grown to look like, we'll never know, for it was brutally crushed. 
Peasants were forced off the land in violent, continent-wide campaigns of evictions in the process known as enclosure. Over the course of three centuries, huge swathes of Britain and the rest of Europe were enclosed and millions of people removed from the land, triggering an internal refugee crisis. For the first time in history, commoners were systematically denied access to the most basic resources necessary for survival. But as far as Europe's capitalists were concerned, enclosure was working like magic. It enabled them to appropriate huge amounts of land and resources that had previously been off limits. Now, economists have always recognised that some kind of initial accumulation was necessary for the rise of capitalism, and Adam Smith called this previous accumulation. And he claimed that it came about because a few people worked really hard and saved their earnings. Um, but uh, this was no this was no innocent process of saving. It was a process of plunder. And Karl Marx, instead of calling it previous accumulation, called it primitive accumulation. So, so we've got uh, the accumulation by a small elite of land. And according to this book, Jason Hickel again, less is more, the rise of capitalism needed something else. It needed labour and lots of it and it needed it cheap. So having forced the um, peasants off their land, people had no choice but to sell their labour. They became um, proletarians. So there's an argument that mm -hmm. um, the modern forced birth movement in the States is all about cheap proletariat labour. Right. Because it's it's the poor who can't get access to abortion. Mm. Yeah, the rich still go off and travel to where it's still legal um, or can afford to pay a doctor to do the job properly. Mm. So it's the poor who end up bearing the excess number of children who they then can't afford and are forced to work under whatever conditions uh, an employer is offering. Okay, and the rich need some... Laborers. The rich need well. Right. The more labour there is, the lower the cost of labour. Yes. Yep. So the idea of having more and more poor people being born. Yes. Is great if you're there controlling the means of production. Yep. Makes sense. Because you you force your production costs down. Makes sense. Um. So where was I? Um. So yeah, Thomas Hobbes. He said uh, that life in the state of nature was nasty, brutish, and short. And he wrote those words in 1651, and the misery he described was created by the rise of capitalism itself. Between 1760 and 1870, about one-sixth of England was enclosed, almost no common land left. Um, places like Manchester had a um, life expectancy was a mere 25 years. So because of a very, very high uh, death uh, rate. infant death rate, probably. So I was listening to um, my friend Cam Riley talking about, uh, oh, what was he talking about? Gorbachev in his um, Bullshit, Filter, Bullshit, Bullshit Filter podcast. And um, he was making the point just with communism in China, for example, when people say, oh, how bad has it been in China, the things they did with Cultural Revolution and all the rest of it. And he said, well, Looking in timescales, um, capitalism didn't start off that well. <laughs> Pretty rocky beginnings for a lot of people under mm -hmm. capitalism with the Industrial Revolution. So whatever economic system you're looking at, um, 
do you need to cut them some slack for the first 100 years while they're working out what they do? Um, because um, arguably China's only just finished its first 100 years of its experiment. And, and it's no longer communist. Yes, and um, perhaps it got through a tough beginning quicker than, than what capitalism did during the dark eras of the sort of industrial revolution. Anyway, I digress. Um, so uh, industrial revolution, at the same time as the enclosure movement, there was also colonisation around the world. Um, so British politicians today often seek to defend colonialism by uh, claiming that Britain helped develop India, but it's probably the other way around. Britain used India to develop itself. Um, so uh, the Industrial Revolution did not emerge out of nothing. It hinged on commodities that were produced by enslaved workers on land stolen from colonised peoples and processed in factories staffed by European peasants who had been forcibly dispossessed by enclosure. That's a good line right here is, enclosure was a process of internal colonisation. Hadn't thought of that before, but it's one way of putting it. I mean, Indigenous people talk about how white men stole their land, uh, which is a good argument. And but the same could be said for lots of white people back in England who had their land stolen by the rich. So I was going to say, so the Angles and Saxons were invaders. Mm. Um, the Normans were invaders. Mm. So these were all in England. Yes. After yeah, the sixth, seventh century. Mm. So it was the Celts who were the original inhabitants, as far as recorded history goes. But you know, then then. There were the um, Homo sapiens who displaced the Neanderthals. Mm. So there's been wave and, after wave of invaders and stealing dis- land and displaced people. And yeah. and looking at um, at the enclosure movement as a type of internal colonisation, you know, it's a fair enough analogy. Um, so. Um, Europe's peasants were dispossessed from their lands just as Indigenous Americans were, or indeed Indigenous Australians. Um, So who would absorb all this output? So you're making all this stuff in these factories. What are you going to do with it? You've got to sell it somewhere. Well, first off, your peasants are no longer on the land providing for themselves, so they've got to buy stuff. So they're working 16 hours a day but then they need to buy stuff to survive. So there's a market there, but that's not enough because you're creating a lot. So what you really need to do is sell it to other parts of the world, i.e. the colonies that you've just colonised. And in a lot of cases they said, well, we don't want to buy your stuff. We can make our stuff. We don't need to pay you guys for this. Hence the opium wars. Indeed. It was like... No, we're going to make you buy our stuff. So, um, so yeah, <laughs> whether you like it or not, you are going to buy our stuff and we're going to force you to do it. And in India... Dumbo diplomacy. Yes. In India, they forced the um, farmers there to grow single crops and mm-hmm. therefore made them vulnerable um, not only to events at home, but then they had to buy other stuff to get a balance. So 
so yeah, that was all part of the system of capitalism that was was done. Um, the same with the potato famine. Apparently, there was plenty of food to go around. Yes. The problem was that the um, the Irish were forced to export the food that was being grown there. Yes. Because they were um, they were not the landowners, mm. and so they were exporting food to be sold cheaply overseas, whilst mm. their you know their own people were starving. Mm. So he says here, it might be tempting to downplay these moments of violence as mere aberrations in the history of capitalism, but they are not. They are the foundations of it. Um, so, um, so yeah, so then forcing people to, um, to buy your goods was the sort of completion of the circuit. Um, so no longer was production about satisfying needs, no longer about social sufficiency. Instead was organised around profit and the benefit of capital. New proletariats regularly worked 16 hours a day, which was significantly longer than they had worked prior to enclosure. Um, John Locke admitted that enclosure was a process of theft from the commons and from the commoners, but he argued that this theft was morally justifiable because it enabled a shift to intensive commercial methods that increased agricultural output. So John Locke, okay, it's theft, but hey, it's led to this great system of intensive agriculture and commercial stuff. And the same logic was used to justify colonisation. Improvement became an alibi for appropriation. Oh, look, these brown fellas here aren't using the land. We're going to use it, therefore we can take it. I think there's a a, a fair argument in... If you're a hunter-gatherer and you're not facing adversity, then there is no need for changing your lot. And what we would consider the wonders of the modern world, you know, such as modern health, mm. um, have only come about because of the freeing up of needing to hunt and gather resources mm. that has come about through capitalism. Mm. Mm. So science was born out of the fruits of capitalism, effectively. Yep. And colonisation. Yep. Just a lot of people had to pay a really high price. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's locking us into a system now of, of production for production's sake, profit for profit's sake, and growth for growth's sake. So, mm -hmm. yes, it had benefits for those who get to access them, um, but uh, the cost for the people who are subjected to these things along the way is a high, high cost. Um, yeah, uh, okay. Um, so, yeah, no longer was production about satisfying needs. Um, people were working hard. Um, isn't this great, though, because we've got this great agriculture? So we've got a similar thing today. Virtually anything can be justified if it contributes to GDP growth. Um, so, um, uh, okay, so. Who, who wrote this? Who wrote this? Oh, is it, is that did, did you copy and paste this from the book? Uh, yeah, this is what I'm reading. Yeah, these are all excerpts from Less is More by Jason. Okay, no, 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 it was to the profits of the landowners. Um, uh, oh, 
It's uh, it's the transcribing as I was dictating it. Jane. Ah, okay. Yeah. I thought you yeah. literally physically copied and pasted. No, profits. Right. Uh, no, I didn't do that. Joe's just making fun of my typographical errors in the script that I'm reading here. Well, no, I was wondering where it came from, and I was yeah. going, surely a published book doesn't have that sort of error no. in it. No. Right. Um, where am I up to? Uh, there was a conscious strategy on the part of Europe's capitalists. They saw enclosure as a tool for enhancing the industry of the masses. So they saw enclosure as a way of getting people to work. And uh, a few quotes here. Um, Our forests and great commons make the poor that are upon them too much like the Indians, wrote the Quaker John Bellers. They are a hindrance to industry and are nurseries of idleness and insolence. So don't let people have a common area. Lord John Bishton wrote in 1794, the use of common land operates on the mind as a sort of independence. Arthur Young said, everyone but an idiot knows that the lower classes must be kept poor or they will, or they will never be industrious. And the Reverend John Townsend said, it's only hunger which can spur and goad them on to labour. So from the capitalist point of view, um, treat them mean, keep them keen <laughs> is the way it is, is. If they're hungry, they will have to work for you. So get yeah, rid of them. Because if they have a sufficiency, hmm. then they don't need to work. Correct. Um, so, so not only did they have to find ways to compel people to work for them, which is what taking the comments did, but they also had to change people's beliefs. They had to change how people regarded the living world. Ultimately, capitalism required a new story about nature. So... Not only did they force people into this situation, but they then looked for a way of of selling it to people as a good idea. I think Americans have done the same thing successfully. Um, oh, yeah, the I mean, American dream. Uh, yeah, but also religion. I mean, Marx famously said, by promising them... By, by telling them that the misery in this life is more than made up for in the afterlife, mm. um, you get them to accept their misery. It's an opiate. It, it, it dulls the mind mm. and stops them from revolting. Mm. So it's very clever that you can forcibly take people off their land and basically force them into sweatshops and then also think about it and you go, you know what, we should develop an ideology so that people will be happy about this or at least less likely to rise up. So that's where we're heading to now in this next section. So Francis Bacon actively sought to destroy the idea of a living world and to replace it with a new ethic that not only sanctioned but celebrated the exploitation of nature. And now, is it Descartes? Is it just pronounced Descartes? It is Descartes. Descartes. Descartes realised that the domination of nature that Francis Bacon called for could only be justified if nature was rendered lifeless. To accomplish this, he reached back to Plato's idea of a world divided in two, and he gave it a new spin. So Descartes argued, there was a fundamental dichotomy between mind and matter, and humans are unique in having minds or souls, and thus had a special connection to God. This vision came to be known as dualism, 
And during the Enlightenment, dualist thought became mainstream for the first time in history. Once commoners were alienated from the land, because they're now living in shoddy factories and stuff in Manchester, they could be convinced to imagine themselves as fundamentally separate from the rest of the living world and to see other beings as objects. Land became property. Living beings became things. Ecosystems became resources. So people are special and are special in God and everything else is just stuff. Descartes succeeded in not only separating mind from body but also establishing a hierarchical relationship between the two. The mind should dominate the body. Descartes' views were leveraged to bring the body under control to defeat its passions and desires and impose on it a regular productive order. Any inclination towards joy, play, spontaneity, the pleasures of bodily experience were regarded as potentially immoral. Idleness was a sin and productivity a virtue. In Calvinist theology, profit became the sign of moral success and the proof of salvation. Poverty was recast not as the consequences of dispossession, but as the sign of personal moral failing. This is really important, dear listener. So Descartes, uh, humans are special. Everything else is just stuff. In particular, the human mind is special. Your body is just stuff. Um, so it's going to lead you into sin. Uh, yes. So your bi- the mind must dominate the body. Um, bodily passions are dangerous. and um, and the Calvinist theology we've talked about previously on this podcast in that most people were just happy to get by. Once they'd made enough and they'd fed themselves and had a little bit extra, they'd stop and enjoy themselves. And it was these God, the Calvinist theology that um, moral success, um, profit was a sign of moral success. So it was a sign that you were probably favoured by God. Now, it wasn't that that being a successful businessman made God love you or made you, um, that God would favour you because of it, but it was just a sign that God actually favoured you if you were successful in business. And that got, that distinction got, blurred in the wash and people would want to basically exhibit to other people, oh, look, I am profitable and successful. I must be favoured by God because that just feels good. But it also got blurred with if I am profitable and successful, I will be favoured by God. Yeah. Um, There's also uh, Andrew was calling out the difference between, you know, um, German workers and possibly uh, I, I think as a, a very extreme example in the other direction, American workers. Mm. Uh, and I've heard it ex- explained as Europeans recognise that they're never going to be the CEO, they're never going to be the millionaire, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore they are more likely to negotiate for better wages for now right? because they recognise that that's going to be their lot in life as a factory worker or whatever. And therefore, why shouldn't a factory worker be earning good wages rather than 
putting up with shit wages because, you know, one day you're going to be the CEO and you're going to be earning your millions. That's right. Every American is just a, a temporarily inconvenienced millionaire. millionaire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, but, yeah, that, and so Calvinists, people work so hard because of this sense that it either proved favour from God or might actually get them favour from God, and then they developed and started acquiring excess and capital as a result because of that drive that this Calvinist theology gave them. Right. Um, so he, said, he goes on in this book to say, we need to draw a distinction between two types of companies. Take your local restaurant. It makes a profit at the end of the year, but the owners are content with more or less the same profit year after year, provided there's enough to pay the rent, put food on the table for their families, maybe go for a holiday in the summer. While such a business might participate in elements of capitalist logic, like paying wages and making a profit, it's not capitalist as such, since ultimately the profit is organised around some conception of use value. This is how the vast majority of small businesses operate. Such shops existed thousands of years before capitalism emerged. Now, consider a corporation like Exxon or Facebook or Amazon. A corporation doesn't operate according to the steady state approach favoured by your local restaurant. They go into expanding the company, buying up competitors, putting local shops out of business, breaking into new countries, building more distribution centres, pumping out marketing campaigns to get people to buy stuff they don't need all to extract more profit each year than the year before. For capitalists, profit isn't just money at the end of the day to be used for satisfying some specific need. Profit becomes capital, and the whole point of capital is it must be reinvented or reinvested to produce more capital. Fundamental distinction. Your local shopkeeper, shop owner, small business person is not by virtue of just that a capitalist. So there's quite a difference between them and these major corporations. Um, we're nearly at the end, dear listener. I repeated the bit about um, the multiplying effect that I spoke about earlier. And, um, and just to finish off, how are we going for time? 8.36. Every time capital bumps up against barriers to accumulation, for example, a saturated market or a minimum wage law, or environmental protections, then like a giant vampire squid, it rides in a desperate attempt to whip those barriers out of the way and look for new sources of growth. This is what is known as a fix. The enclosure movement was a fix. Colonisation was a fix. The slave trade was a fix. The opium wars against China were fixes. The Western expansion of the United States was a fix. Each one of these fixes, all of them violent, opened up new frontiers for appropriation and accumulation, which was all in service of capital's growth imperative. And it's just my own comment at the end here is we're now in late-stage capitalism and we've run out of fixes. You know what the last fix was, don't you? It was the financial crisis pumping Oh, I was thinking women money. in the workforce. Yes, uh, well, that, was a, that was another fix. Indeed. It was a huge fix. Yes, that added, in theory, income. And also credit. Hmm. Added income into a family, which basically directly went into rising real estate prices because people could pay more. So 
because people had more money, they paid more money. And personal credit. Mm. Yeah, credit cards, the number of people now who are in debt, Mm. not just on a mortgage, but general money on a credit card. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, from the American point of view, they have, you know, dominated South America and Central America. Uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, essentially a lot of money was made there as well. Um, they look at China and they want that's the next fix for America is the Chinese market. So that's why it annoys the heck out of them that they can't get in. And the fact that they are stopped uh, entering the financial system, uh, the fact that China did not do deals with the IMF that would have opened up their country is what essentially is driving Americans nuts. And uh, they need another market to keep this growth happening and they're running out of options. It's don't know where to turn next. So as a result, we might be heading in for some rocky waters. Rocky waters, is that an expression? Is that a metaphor? Yeah. Um, yeah okay. You've got reefs. Okay. Um, over the next little while, Joe, I... I'm worried about the economy and what's going to happen. We could be headed for some fascinating times economically. Um, we'll have to wait and see. So, all right. Well, dear listener, that was a bit of a different one. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> There's no real point in going into something else now. Um, next week we'll do a rundown of what's been happening over the last um, – Week or two. Maybe you should have invited the socialists back. Yeah, I mean, they were just calling for a, a, a revolution, weren't they? They yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have clear ideas of how that was going to happen. Anyway. All right. Well, if you're in the chat room, thanks for hanging in there. Um, I realise it was a strange episode. Hope you got something out of it. Um, buy the books. Less is more by Jason Hickel. There's a lot more in there. Same with Backlab Smill. How the world really works, and um, and yeah, there's lots in there that I haven't referred to. So, all right, talk to you next week. Bye for now. What's that, my love? What am I doing? Well, I'm going to write some love poetry. Well, of course, I'll let you read it when I'm finished. Oh, capitalism, some say you are a prison, but to them I do not listen. Some say you have put millions in the ground, but to that I say, hmm, they were mostly brown. In you there is no gloom, as people consume and the economy booms, profits are maximised, and to no one's surprise, those of us on top, Get to keep the lot. Well, Landon, there's one for the ages. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and... It's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone 
and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.